good to be together with you. Uh, thanks to Simon for leading the first part of the service. Let me add to his welcome. And if you have a Bible, please do open with me there to Psalm 130. And we're going to look at this together. Last week, we looked at Psalm 126, the prayer of one who is in a dry place. This evening, we're going to look at Psalm 130, the prayer of someone in a deep place. And I'm calling this message the prayer for one who feels life is overwhelming or a prayer when you, when, when life just seems so overwhelming. So if you have it, turn with me uh, there and follow along as we walk down through it. Now I see it's in the bulletin and uh, you all know by now that I'm currently training for a a sponsored triathlon uh, at the end of June uh, up at Castle Ward. And since that has gone public, a lot of people ask me, you know, what's the bit that you find the hardest that you feel you're going to have to work, work on more than the others? And every time, without hesitation, I say the swim. And uh, my answer is always the swim for the, uh, one, one simple reason. If you're on the bike and you get tired, you can slow down and stop. If you're running and you get tired, you can slow down and stop. But if you're out in the middle of the swim and you get tired. There's not much you can do but sink and cry for help. So I'm working hard on the swim because obviously I don't want that to happen. Psalm 130 is the prayer of someone who feels they're tired, they're sinking, and it's a cry for help. They're not sinking in water, but under the afflictions of life and under a deep sense of sin, feeling far from God. And we know today that this experience of being overwhelmed at times by difficulties and our own inner struggles, this is not something that's unique to the psalmist way back then. This is something we can all experience from time to time. Whether it's the busyness of life or the pressure of all the spinning plates or relationship stress, either with our nearest and dearest, our families who we care about, our friends or others, whether it's grief or health anxiety or general anxiety or depression, struggles with insecurity, assurance, just struggles with sin. Sometimes we can just feel overwhelmed and we find it hard to keep our heads above the water. At such times in our lives as Christians, what are we to do? Well, Psalm 130 is such a precious gift from God because it is here in our Bibles to help us answer that question. It's a psalm that teaches us about how to hope in God when life seems overwhelming. And the main message of this psalm is found towards the end in verse 7. When the psalmist lifts his head from his own experience and looks out to others who go through afflictions and difficulties and says to the people of God, O Israel, hope in the Lord. 
for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. The psalmist is essentially saying, hope in God, church, for in him is everything we need. Now, the psalm divides really neatly into four sections, each with two verses. For someone who loves symmetry and order, I find that very satisfying. And each little two-verse section gives us its own lesson on how to find hope in God when life feels overwhelming. We'll work through each section and really be taken on the journey that this psalm wants to bring us on, from the depths of despondency in verses 1 and 2 to the heights of renewed joy and confidence in God that marks the last two verses of the psalm. So four lessons on how we can find hope in God when life seems overwhelming. Lesson one, know you can always cry out to God and be heard, no matter how deep down you're in a pit. In verse one, the psalmist cries out from the deep and overwhelming place he finds himself in. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now, the specific circumstances that have led him to feeling so, so overwhelmed are not detailed, but like several other Psalms, and like Psalm 126 from last week, this is actually really helpful for us today because it more easily allows us to insert our own situations and our own experiences of life in the pit into the prayer. We can take this Psalm on our lips and make it our own prayer this evening. It could be that you're in the depths this evening, and I know as your pastor that some of you are. It could, have, it could be some of those things I mentioned at the beginning, the stress, the grief, the health issues. It could be relational breakdowns, and some of those things you're worried about many, many things, and sometimes you just say, I can't cope. But the depths can take other forms as well. Sometimes we can just be in a depth, a deep place where we're spiritually lethargic. We're in the depths of indifference, lifelessness, spiritually speaking. Or we can be in the depths of frustration and negativity as we're praying and praying about something and God doesn't seem to be anywhere and he, he feels far. Or sometimes we can be in the depths of guilt over failure to defeat sin in our lives. Sometimes we can be totally overwhelmed because of a lack of assurance. It's one of the pastoral situations that I come across most often. People struggling. They know the gospel. They know it applies. But does it apply to me? Sometimes in the depths, whatever expression our deep place takes, sometimes in the depths we can feel unworthy and we feel that we can't actually cry out to God for help because we're so rubbish and we feel so rubbish. We feel guilty about that and we don't feel that, we, that God would be interested in hearing our voice. Well, let me just remind you this evening, Satan wants to keep you in the pit. He wants you to feel really bad for being in there 
and he wants to make you feel you're so deep that you're beyond the hearing ear of God's mercy. But that is not true. You know, for my son's whatever birthday, I don't know which one it was, Elliot, I know it was him, he wanted to get a set of walkie-talkies. And he said, like, not cheapy kids' ones, I want, like, good ones. You know, like the old CB radios where people had a big giant thing on their car and stuff? He wanted something decent. So we got him these fairly fancy walkie-talkies, well, fancy-ish. Um, and he said, the first thing I want to do is test the range on them. So, uh, so I sat in the house, and uh, he went off with his brother and with Grace tagging along in behind him. And uh, they walked, and they walked for quite a wee while. And I think Lindsay, I'm glad she didn't know because she would have been terrified. They, they wandered off quite some distance, and it, we just kept doing the old, you know, hello, Daddy, can you hear me? And I was like, hello, I can still hear you. And they kept going and going and going, but eventually, of course, there was no response. Um, thankfully, they made it back home safely. They didn't disappear. But um, there was no response because they got out of range. Isn't it so encouraging to know that you can never be in a pit so deep or with circumstances so overwhelming that you're out of range of the hearing and merciful ear of God. Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy learned the same lesson in an amazing way in the heart of those concentration camps in Nazi Germany. I'm sure you've heard me recount this story before from Corrie ten Boom's biography, The Hiding Place. Corrie recounts the story of her family's efforts to help the Jews, to help hide them. She recounts her time spent in a concentration camp with her sister. She recounts the story that after watching one atrocity after another in the camp, her sister Betsy eventually fell ill and died. But just before Betsy died, she spoke to Corey of her hope of sharing one day some of the lessons that they had learned with the outside world. Betsy said to Corey, Corey, we must tell people what we've learned here. We must tell them that there's no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. The psalmist knows this reality and so from a deep place cries out. And in verse 2 says, O Lord, hear my voice. And then look at how he turns to, to personify the Lord and speak of God's ears. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Maybe you're here this evening and you just need to be reminded of this opening simple truth. There's no pit that you can be in where you're out of range of God. You can cry to him from the pit this evening. Sometimes in the pits and when we're feeling overwhelmed with stuff in life, we can get into the habit of running to everyone else for help. And yes, we can be helped on one level by our friends, by our elders, by our, uh, those that we can trust. But ultimately, the only one who can meet our deepest needs, heal our deepest brokenness, meet us in our deepest insecurity, the only one who can give us everything we really need is God himself. And so, when we are in the pit, it is so helpful to remember the invitation that our God offers us. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those were the words of Christ from Matthew eleven twenty eight. So lesson one, when in the pit, know you can always cry out and be heard no matter how deep down under you are. Lesson two, remember we're thinking of how to find hope in God when life is overwhelming. Lesson two, preach grace to yourself every day and don't give guilt a foothold. In verse three now, the second section of two verses, the psalmist is reminding himself of his plight apart from God's grace and forgiveness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He's saying, Lord, if you were to count my sins against me, I would have no hope of coming to you to find the help I need. I wouldn't have a chance. He's preaching the gospel to himself. Why does he say this? Lord, if you marked transgressions against us, who could stand? Well, first and foremost, because he knows that our God is holy. And our unforgiven sin is like a big barrier. It keeps us from God. It's like our sin's a big wall, and God is on the other side, and we have this big sign in front of us that says, Access denied. To help you think about this a little more, imagine you were diagnosed with a condition and you were told by the doctor that you would for certain die within three days. But the doctor says there is a medicine for your condition that will heal you and save you. But it costs half a million pounds. You don't have anyone you can find that can lend you that money as you desperately search for it. So you go into a bank one day for a loan. The banker says, yes, we'll give you the loan, but first you're going to have to pass a credit credit check. The credit check comes back on day two, and it's failed. Because they know that you don't have the means to pay back a debt like that. You have already outstanding credit card debts and your credit card, your credit score, it doesn't give you what you need. Well, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's like we've run up an unpayable debt against a holy God. Our sins are offensive to God because they belittle his glory. And if he holds these sins against us, we're undone. We will be judged by God and condemned. By ourselves, we can do nothing about that situation. We can't break down the wall. We can't find our way in. We can't earn it. We can't gain it. We can't pay the debt, the sin debt. And so the psalmist says, if, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities against us, O Lord, who could stand? Lord, if you were to count my sins against me, and I'm crying out from the pit, if you were to hold those sins against me, I wouldn't have a hope. But then look at the next verse, verse 4. 
The first word, just look at the first word, but. But. Oh, praise the Lord, there is a but in this verse, in this psalm. It's brilliant. But with you, there's forgiveness. There's hope that you may be feared. Here is what I love to call the big but of the gospel (laughs) that we must preach to ourselves every day. Spurgeon comments on this and says, Ah, blessed but, free, full, sovereign pardon is at the hand of the great king. It is his prerogative to forgive, and he delights to exercise it. In the New Testament, we're told how this forgiveness is made available to us through the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. Colossians 2, 13 and 15 puts it so helpfully. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Then listen to the language of Colossians 2, 14. By cancelling the record of debt, your credit score, your credit check came back failed. But Christ cleared that. He cancelled it so that it comes back past. You get the medicine you need so that you're not going to die and face the condemnation and judgment of God. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. I just love this. This, he just set it aside. Nailing it to the cross. How amazing would that feel if you're on day two Your credit score fails. You're facing death and someone comes in and says, don't worry, I've taken care of it. Jesus took our debt. He owned it as he owned. He paid our debt by absorbing the displeasure of God into himself on the cross. When he cried out, finished. Paid in full. Remember how the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, access granted. And now, because there is forgiveness, we can come and find in him everything we need. Instead of being cut off from the fountain, now in Christ the way is open, we come to the fountain that is God himself. Now let's remember, what's the psalmist doing here? Well, I want to argue that he's preaching grace to himself in the pit. Because it is so easy to get deep down into the pit and think of your unworthiness. God wouldn't want to listen to me because of my mess. I've been away from him for so long. I haven't prayed. I haven't read my Bible. I haven't done this, that, and the other. You're in the pit and you feel, how can I call out to God now? And so the psalmist demonstrates the importance of preaching grace to ourselves. Yes, if the Lord was to count your sins against you, you wouldn't have a hope. But he doesn't in Christ. But with him there's forgiveness. You can come to the fountain. We must get into the habit of preaching the gospel of grace to ourselves every day so that we don't get overwhelmed by that low-level guilt and a performance-based Christian life. If you do not preach the gospel of grace to yourself every day, you will always slowly slip into legalism. 
Christ has done everything needed to open the way so that we can boldly come before the throne of grace and find mercy and help in our time of need. And notice just briefly at the end of verse 4, the forgiveness is not an end in itself, but a means to a greater end. With you there is forgiveness, not a full stop, but forgiveness that you may be feared. We come recognizing His holiness, His mercy, and then we respond with reverential thanks and appreciation, and we realize afresh the sheer privilege that is ours in being able to draw near the throne of grace. We must never forget the absolute privilege that prayer is. To be able to utter one word to God is an incredible, immeasurable privilege. How wonderful it is to do that privately, to do that corporately when we gather together on Wednesdays, either here as a larger group or in the homes in our small groups. It is one of the privileges, the privileges of the Christian life that we must never forget, both individual and corporate prayer. What a blessing. So, lesson two, preach grace to yourself every day. Don't give guilt a foothold. Lesson three, how to hope in God when life is overwhelming. Try to practice intentional faith filled waiting. In verse 5, the psalmist now speaks of his commitment to wait on God to bring renewal. And notice, it is the Lord himself he looks for, not just escape from his circumstances. It's as if he's saying, Lord, first come in to the pit with me before you lift me out. I wait for the Lord, he writes. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. You know, we live in a culture that does not have much time for waiting. I'm sure you feel it. You go to load something on your phone, and if it doesn't load instantly, you're like, uh, and get stressed so quickly. We want stuff done. We want it now. So when we cry out to God, we seek to turn back to him. We expect often a full and immediate sense of his loving presence straight away. Often this happens, and it is wonderful. But sometimes it doesn't. Many times, God appoints for his people a time of waiting, where he seems to be quiet. And the image used here in the psalm to help us understand this part of the Christian life is that of the watchman. It's very, very simple. He's the night guard posted to keep watch over the city, the gate, or a flock of animals to keep them safe through the night. In especially hostile times when the watching was tense, you can just imagine how the watchman must have longed for the morning to break in the last few hours of his shift. I worked for a company called Answer Call Direct once on 12-hour night shifts from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. And uh, to be honest, it was one of the most horrible jobs I've ever done. And I've done some interesting jobs, I can tell you. But those last few hours, in the early hours of the morning, I longed for the shift to be over. Now, I know some of you work night shifts here in different 
situations, and I know you'll get me here, and anyone else that's worked night shifts, you know it. Anyone else, you can imagine how awful it is when your eyes are stinging, and you feel like your face is swollen. And I always got heartburn because I ate potato cheese and onion crisps at about two in the morning for some reason. And I used to just hate it. Well, here's this image of, of a watchman, and he's waiting for the morning. But what's the picture? What's the point of the, the illustration? The writer here, the psalmist, is trying to express a longing to experience God's renewing grace, the water of life, the fresh wind of the Spirit. He wants to express a longing for God to come and bring renewal that is intense. A longing to know the love of God on a new level. A longing to know the nearness and comfort of God afresh. The writer is waiting on God to come in a fresh new way to bring renewal and personal revival. And he's saying, I'm like the watchman longing for dawn to break again. Another writer has said on waiting in the Christian life, if the Lord Jehovah makes us wait, let us do so with our whole hearts. For blessed are all those who wait for him. He's worth waiting for. The waiting itself is beneficial to us. It tests our faith, exercises our patience, trains our submission, and endears the blessing when it comes. The Lord's people, remember, have always been a waiting people. That was Spurgeon again. But notice in the psalm, this is not an inactive waiting. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Here is the essence of Christian active waiting. To wait well, we must keep our souls in a patient and calm frame, trying to battle impatience and bitterness. We try to practice contentment and submission whilst also hoping for renewal. And while we're in a period of waiting, this psalm and other scriptures tell us that we focus all of our hope on the Word of God, and I think that means here on His precious promises. So instead of unpacking that much more, I just want to give you four promises from Scripture to help you, whatever shape your period of waiting is taking in the moment. In His Word, I hope. Here's the kind of texts we can hope in when we are feeling overwhelmed. Isaiah 41.10, I would encourage you to get these into your bloodstream. No matter what age you are, even if it's just Isaiah 41.10, memorize it, get it in there, because it is something that will help you over and over again. God speaks and says, fear not, for I am with you. Boy, that can be a tonic in the pit. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Boy, that can minister grace to you in the pit. And in the pit, 
may not feel much, but you say, Lord, I'm going to hope in that word. I'm going to apply my faith. Reach out with the hands of faith and hold them open and say, Lord, that, that promise is yes for me in Jesus. It's mine in Christ. I'm going to wait for you. Second one, Psalm 18.30. I find this so helpful when I myself am in a pit and I'm confused. Psalm 18.30, I come back to it time and time again. This God, His way is perfect. God doesn't make mistakes. Sometimes in the pit, it is so easy to think God doesn't understand, he doesn't know, he's not sovereign, he's not in control, he's just left me here to languish. And yet God never leaves his children to languish. This God, his way is perfect. The verse goes on to say, the word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Third word to hope in, Romans 8, 28. Man, we can do some wrestling with this, can't we? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even in this, God, you are at work for my good. Even in this, you can take it and where it feels like there's no design and that would be far worse, trust me. If God's not sovereign and you're going through the pit and there's no design, everything's worse. But if in the hands of a sovereign God he can take and weave the trial and the difficulty and make it serve your sanctification and make you more like Jesus through it, you can take heart. No moment of pain is meaningless for the Christian. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Let's just make this our last word to hope in, but man, we could just keep going all night with these. I find this so helpful when Paul was wrestling with what he called a thorn. Praying, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God says, no, no, no. And then this beautiful breakthrough of light for Paul. And he hears God's word. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And the light of that word breaks through for Paul and he finds this quiet contentment where before his soul was tumultuous. And then he speaks of even delighting in those weaknesses because in that weak place he says there's a strength. And so those are just four examples of, I think, what this psalmist is doing when he says, I'm waiting, but in his word, I hope. You don't just wait inactively. You don't just wait and empty your mind like the New Age movement, which is just empty your mind, find inner peace, find, empty yourself. No, you fill yourself with truth. And you apply your hope and faith to that truth. And you wait and you wait and you know the truth of those songs we were singing this evening. He will hold me fast. Fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you. I'll not let you go. And know this, just as the coming of the morning, the morning was certain for the watchman, so the promises of God and their fulfillment are certain for the Christian. We may taste something of 
the goodness of the fulfillment now. But we know not to expect the fullness now. Sometimes the Lord breaks through and just settles our soul in amazing ways as we hope in his word. But sometimes we, it's, better, it's better if we're calibrating our hearts rightly and saying, I know I experience something of comfort, something of a breakthrough of light now, but I also know the fullness of all of this is on that day when I'm called home to be with the Lord or when Christ comes. And that helps you to wrestle. I want the taste of it, Lord. I want to taste and see that you're good. And sometimes the breakthrough is just amazing. And others, you're just applying your faith and you're applying your faith and you're waiting and you're trusting and you're waiting and you're trusting and you're inviting others to pray for you. And, but there's a contentment in the waiting. We wrestle through when we are hoping in God, when life is overwhelming, it can be so helpful to practice intentional, faith-filled waiting. And now finally, lesson four, for hoping in God when life seems overwhelming, remember, this is very simple, remember that everything you need is in God. You've got to get that ingrained into your heart. Now if you're not in the pit, so when the day comes when you are in the pit, that will be tattooed on your soul. In verse 7 comes the central invitation of the psalm. And in light of all we've seen now in the unpacking of the previous six verses, see the psalmist lifting his head and saying, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. This is a call from one whose zeal is returning and whose faith has been renewed. If someone was to ask the psalmist, why should we hope in the Lord? Well, he gives us his answer. For with the Lord, there's steadfast love. And I love this. With him, there's not just redemption, there's plentiful redemption. You know, every one of us are born with something we can never shake. We can never shake it off. Every single one of us, we have a need to be loved. and a need to know we're loved. We long for love because we've been made to know love. Human beings can go a long way in satisfying that need partly, but they can never satisfy it fully. Even the best husband, the best wife, the best friend, the best mentor, the best father, the best mother, they cannot satisfy your deepest need to know that you are loved. Why? Because that need for love finds its absolute source in God. We were made by Him to know His love. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they experienced the insecurity. They were racked with insecurity because of that fear. Oh no. I am unlovely. It's as if, as some people say, there is that need for love that has been implanted by the divine, by God. And so humans can satisfy us on one level, but they will never satisfy our divine need, our need for divine love. 
apart from his love, his redemption in Christ, we will always deep down have an insecurity ache. Even the best human love, as I've said, is shaky and inconsistent. But look at what the writer says here. Hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, steady, constant. Just think of a beam that's constant, never breaks, weakens, or wanes for a moment. But the writer doesn't just speak of God's steadfast love. He speaks of his plentiful redemption with this God. There's provision of grace, mercy, help, blessing. This God is not a stingy God because with him is not just redemption, but plentiful redemption. I love it that no one is saved by the skin of their teeth. Those saved in Christ, by Christ, are fully saved, plentifully saved. It's, there's no close calls in Christ. And in the end, as verse 8 tells us, we will one day be fully and finally liberated from all the overwhelming waves, all the pits, all the difficulties that we can experience in a fallen world. One day, as we said last week, our pains will give way and we will feast. We will know tears, not of pain and sorrow, but of joy and happiness. And our joy will be unspeakable, indescribable, uncontainable. It'll take all of eternity <laughs> to exhaust our joy and eternity will never end. Because in the end, guaranteed by the new creation, resurrection power of Christ, this whole world itself will be redeemed from its bondage to decay and all those in Christ will enjoy the fullness of that plentiful redemption. We will see that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me encourage you if you're in a pit tonight, remember you won't be in the pit forever. Christ has guaranteed that because of his resurrection from his pit of death. He will lift you out of the pit of sin and death and trial and tribulation out of a pit of condemnation, he'll lift you up and in glory with him, he'll never let you fall into a pit again. That's our hope. It's sure, it's certain, and it's steady because of the risen Christ. So, how to hope in God when life overwhelms you? Cry out no matter how deep down you are. Preach grace to yourself. Wait and hope and know for certain that everything you need is in God himself. And the way is opened in Christ. So if you feel you're weary, you're drowning, hear the exhortation of this psalm again. Great Vic, hope in the Lord. For with him is everything you need steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Let's pray. Father, I think of the words of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. 
He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mud and Mary clay, and he set my feet on a rock. Father, that's our story because we were in a pit and a muddy, merry bog of sin. And Christ plunged his arms down in and he pulled us out and he set us on the rock of himself washed down in the blood of Christ, made new, filled with the Spirit, a new song in our mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Thank you that our worst pit has been dealt with. But Father, we come to you in all the other pits of fallenness, and tonight I pray that we would find renewed hope in you, for in you alone is everything that we need. We thank you for your word and for this precious psalm that you've given to us because you know the battles we face. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together and sing of our sure and certain hope. My hope is built on nothing less. Christ is our rock, our cornerstone. Let's stand and praise the Lord together.
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.